Hello and welcome to 4 Questions. Today we are discussing tax evasion. This is a major challenge for low and middle income countries. If businesses evade taxes, government has less money to spend on health, education, infrastructure, etc. So how can we improve tax collection? To learn about this, I'm at the University of Zurich with Professor Dina Pomerantz. She has co-developed and tested two RCTs, randomized control trials in Chile, and a natural experiment in Ecuador. These explore what happens when tax authorities try to shift businesses' beliefs about what government knows, what it will do, and what other firms are doing. So first of all, welcome Dina. Dina, I am beyond excited that you are here. I am a gigantic, enormous fan of you, so thank you so much. Right, now, tell me, why is it particularly challenging uh, to raise taxes in developing countries? So uh, just before we start, I need to say I'm also a bit starstruck here because <laughs> I know you from Twitter and like super famous and suddenly you're in my office and you want to talk about my research. All a bit overwhelming, but very exciting. Um, so why is it particularly challenging for developing countries? So the main challenge for all tax enforcement is how does government even have the information about which transactions in the economy happened and how to tax them. And if you think about an economy like Switzerland or the United States where everything is on documents or in a computer, then it makes it obviously much more easy to collect information than if you have a large informal sector where nothing is recorded ever. And so the big challenge in the very beginning for countries is to even get taxpayers, firms, people into the tax net and to be registered at all. But even once they are registered, they may do a lot of activities that are not recorded anywhere. And so they can just pretend that they had no sales and then there's also no income tax. Ah. So the big challenge for the government is to try to develop systems where they can force taxpayers to reveal how much revenue or profit they actually had. Okay, so how do we do that? How does government get information about these transactions and, and what's happened? So one aspect that we're particularly looking at in this research that we're going to talk about today is sort of finding a trick for finding information about taxpayers because if you just go and ask nicely, hi Alice, don't you want to tell me what your profits were? And you know, Alice, that nobody else is declaring anything. You don't want to be the only one right, to say sure. that. And you're going to say, well, actually, you know, maybe we spent like $2. Uh, uh, I saw the month. cookie, did I? I saw one cookie. cookie, exactly. So how do we get information out? So one um, mechanism that also rich countries have historically used to build their tax enforcement capacity is to find a way to get one agent in the economy to reveal information about another such that there's suddenly an incentive for person one to reveal information about person two and now person two has to declare that information because the government already know it. So a basic example that many people know is when you work in the formal sector and you have a salary in many countries the employer will send information to the government about all the salaries they paid, that then allows the employer to deduct the salary from their profit tax. But now the employee, the government also knows that all these employees had the salary and these employees can no longer pretend they didn't have any income. Right, but This right. is this type of third party information where now the employer has an incentive to sort of tell on the employees that they had the revenue. Okay. And so this is what you were trying to explore in Chile. Tell me how you did that. Exactly. So in Chile, we wanted to study the power of this third-party information, but in a different tax, mm -hmm. the value-added tax, 
which outside of the United States, almost all the countries now have. So for those who are listening from the United States to explain how the value added tax works, it's tax on the value added of your business. So it's your sales minus your input costs. That's the value added of the business. Okay, so this is supposed to be better than a sales tax exactly because of this third party mechanism. If a firm wants to only pay taxes on sales minus input costs, they have to have receipts on their inputs. Mm. So then to get the receipt, they will ask their supplier for a document showing that the supplier sold them not just one cookie, like you said in the example, but maybe 10,000 cookies. Okay. So now in my books, for example, there would be a receipt that says I bought 10,000 cookies for $10,000 from Alice last month. And if you then went and you told the tax authority that in fact, you did only sell one cookie, they could cross check that and say, hey, there's something missing. And so right. the value added tax is thought to be particularly helpful for tax collection for that exact reason. Mm. Now, there was a lot of hypotheses about that already out there, but we didn't really have a rigorous empirical test of whether this worked in practice. So this was what we were trying to do in Chile. But, but Dino, I have a question. Yes. How, how, how do you do that? Because you have in Chile, the value added tax is already nationwide. So how do you try to ascertain its causal impact? Yeah, that was exactly the challenge, right? So when we think about randomized experiments or policy experiments, we often think of a new policy that hasn't existed. And as a pilot, we're introducing it and we're measuring that. But in the case of well, the other tax in Chile, we couldn't do that because that actually Chile was one of the first countries on the planet to have introduced this tax. So mm. it has been long established. So we did two experiments to try to get to test the effectiveness of, of an institution as the institution is already established. And the first one was a very large countrywide randomized experiment where we told 100,000 firms, I mean, saying we, the tax authority of Chile sent letters um, to 100,000 tax uh, firms saying you have been randomly selected for special scrutiny. And mm. by the way, as a parenthesis, and people have concerns about ethics and randomized trials, this was actually one place where I, as the researcher, insisted that we would say randomly so that we wouldn't put all these people in nightmares that they did something wrong <laughs> and therefore received this letter. Yeah. So then we wanted to see how firms respond. And what we found is that they did increase a lot their tax reporting, but only on those transactions that were not subject to already to this third party paper trail. So essentially on the parts where there was this third party reporting, mm. they already hadn't cheated that much before. Okay. And then the parts where there wasn't this third party reporting, once they thought they would be audited, or there was a risk of monitoring, mm. they really incre increased their reporting on those margins. So the underlying implication is whenever there's a risk of monitoring, whenever there's a risk that the government might know something, then people are more likely to pay more tax. Well, yes. And, and in this particular case, the idea would be that there's two sources of how the government mm. could know. One is from this paper, paper trail, trail mm. or they come and check. Mm. You know, but there needs to person. be the incentive, the idea that the government might know. Okay, and then cool. it, but then in, we thought, okay, that's nice. We find that the reaction is bigger where there isn't a paper trail. That's very suggestive mm. that the paper trail mm. is creating this difference. Mm. But you know, academics and we can always come up with other th stories sure. of why 
things might actually be different mm. on these types of transactions mm. and maybe it's not because of the paper trail. Mm. So that's why we had a second experiment that actually tried to study this mechanism like in the field, in practice, jumpstart the power of this and see if we can detect the power of the paper trail when you turn it on. And so we went to a type of firm that is very remote, small, and is reporting losses every year. So probably they're cheating a lot. So, you know, losses and losses and losses. It's very suspicious. And we told half of them that they would be audited next year. And the other half, we didn't tell anything. And what, what do you think happens now with this receipt story that I told you about the cookies? I think they might start reporting, start paying more taxes, maybe? Yeah, but in a particular thing, there's a particular thing that happens, like now that I think I'm going to get audited, mm -hmm. I really want those receipts. Right. Because once uh, so they audit me, so they're going to ask for so the receipts. So they start asking we'll their start suppliers? start to ask yeah. their suppliers right, for right, receipts. Okay. And so what we found, which was a really cool, in my opinion, is that when I get a letter that I will be audited, you start to pay my right. taxes. Yes. And, and what we could also see is my clients don't start to pay more taxes. So it's not just we're all friends, we mm -hmm. talk to each other and I say, hey, the tax authority starts to audit people, yeah. let's all comply. But it has really this directionality that my suppliers are starting to comply, but not my clients. And so it goes up the value added chain. Right. So it's not just enough to have VAT, but it's about the idea how an enforcement or a monetary mechanism creates an incentive for the paper trail. Yes. Exactly. So it's sort of interactive that if I know I'll be audited, I have more of an incentive to ask for a receipt. Mm -hmm. So then this paper trail starts to have more power and starts to become mm -hmm. more widespread. And there's a nice efficiency gain there. You don't need to threaten every, you don't need to monitor everyone, exactly. but it's just you stimulate this incentive for the exactly. whole chain. Mm -hmm. And that's why sometimes people call this mechanism the self-enforcing mechanism yeah. of the VAT. Mm -hmm. But I find that term kind of misleading because it's exactly not self-enforcing. Right, sure. It needs an additional Yeah, you need threats. the visible hand. Exactly. Yeah. And, but then there is sort of a self-enforcing spillover, if mm -hmm. you will, based on uh, enforcement on one It's firm. like someone needs to kick the snowball down the hill. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Okay, so the government of Ecuador is seeing this and they're thinking, wow, that's exciting. And they come to you, Dina, right? Well, we went to them, so all of these collaborations are really a two-way street mm -hmm. where I work with tax authorities and we explore together, hey, it would be really cool, you get an additional researcher for free, I get a cool like mm -hmm. tax authority for free, <laughs> we could work together, and so we mm -hmm. brainstorm, spend weeks trying to figure out where might be areas of common interest. And mm. so we did that with, together with Pau Carrillo, mm. who is from Ecuador, who introduced me to the tax authority in Ecuador. and. Um, then the, the Ecuadorian tax authority proposed that we could study this intervention that they had done on their mm. own. And they said, um, look now with computerization, we can cross check all this third party information. We've had it on the books for years, but mm. we didn't have the capacity mm. to use it. Now we're going to start using it and you can evaluate the amazing increase in tax that we're going to collect mm. from doing so. Mm. Then it turned out it's not as easy as we thought or they thought to switch this on. Why not? So they did exactly what we described before in the Chile case, mm. that they took all this information from the value added tax mm -hmm. and they calculated how much revenue a firm at a minimum had based on reports from other agents in the economy. Then they took the 3,000 cases where that discrepancy was the biggest, where the firm reported, for example, $200,000 mm. in revenue 
and the tax authority knew they actually had a million. Mm. So very big gaps. And they sent letters to these firms saying, here we know that you underreported your revenue, please rectify immediately your tax declaration. Mm. Then they sat back and waited for the money to flow. So, yeah, and then what happened? It all flowed, right? <laughs> well, some money flowed, but much less than expected. Two things didn't work as expected. One was that many firms just ignored the letter. So even when the government says, we think you owe more money, people are just like, Right, because in the rich country, where this, where this has already been established for a long time, we assume you get a letter from the tax authority, you're terrified. Yeah. But that works because most people comply. Mm. So the few people who get this letter, government actually has the time and energy to audit all these people. Mm. If you're in a low capacity environment where many taxpayers don't comply, then the, the people know correctly that the mm. government can't go and audit each and every one of us. Yeah, yeah. And they send 3,000 letters yeah. and they're not going to do 3,000 audits. Mm. It's way too costly. Yeah. So they actually correctly anticipated that if they didn't do anything, probably nothing would happen. That was the first part. The second part was even more surprising, which is that of those who actually increased their tax, mm -hmm. their reported revenue, mm -hmm. they reported very correctly their reported revenue to exactly the amount that the government said was missing. Mm -hmm. And they reported that their costs had gone up by essentially the same amount. I see. I For every dollar in higher yeah. reported revenue, they reported 96 cents in mm. higher costs. And so the tax authority, instead of having, you know, over 100 million additional tax revenue, they collected 2 million additional tax revenue, which was, you know, is better than nothing, but was mm. much less than they had expected. So I bet they were a little bit disappointed. Yeah, well, first they were disappointed and then we started thinking together, so what does this mean? Yeah. Does this mean third-party reporting, it's useless, mm. two million dollars, it's great for a small country like Ecuador, it's a lot of money, but mm. it's not, is it worth it? But there are multiple things we need to remember. So yeah. one is that it takes time to build this deterrence over time. Mm. In the beginning, when you have 3,000 firms and you, know, you can't audit 3,000 firms, but if you start as we saw in the other paper, you're requesting this information, then now they report more costs, they're probably going to ask for more receipts. So mm. the, the coverage might expand. The second point is the tax authority has now some firms who are complying, and so they can focus their, their attention on other firms and also on this other margin, which is the, the costs, you know, which to audit the cost, you need to actually go and audit the cost in person. Mm -hmm. But you at least have an easier way to audit the revenue, so mm -hmm. it saves some time. Um, and third is, I think that if the tax authority now starts to go very severely after some of those people who did mm -hmm. these outrageous adjustments of taxes, sometimes to the cent to the same amount of, mm -hmm. as the revenue, people will learn that you can no longer do that, and over time the mm -hmm. terms will grow. But I think also what we need to keep in mind, and I think what is also the bottom line of this, is that all this new computer power is great and cross-checks is great, but at the bottom, at the source of it, you need to have a tax authority still that has the deterrence power, like we saw mm -hmm. in the case of Chile, mm -hmm. that when the tax authority says, well, audit you next year, you start asking for receipts, you're starting collecting your paper, and you actually believe that mm -hmm. something is going to happen. So I think the 
computer power, a cross-check, a paper trail, and the very traditional strengthening the tax authority, reducing corruption, building manpower are complementary in achieving this mm -hmm. goal. But you know, Dino, it's really interesting because I see a parallel here with ICTs and social movements and governance and activism more broadly. Like over the past 10 years, there's been this a sense of optimism that, you know, with transparency and accountability, oh, we just provide people with information about how corrupt the government is, or we provide information about how much money has gone to their school, and then suddenly people will mobilize. Or, you know, we just need to get this information out there, and then suddenly we'll see this. But across Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa, we find that people are more likely to mobilize on the basis of information based on their perceptions of what the government will do. Exactly. So if they think the government is tolerant, if they think the government is responsive and capable, then they're more likely to mobilize to press for reforms. Whereas if they think they're going to be violently repressed, beaten up, if they think they're going to be ignored, if they think the government can't do anything about that problem, then they don't act on the basis of that information. So it's not just enough to put the information out there through some fancy ICT mechanism. It's about changing people's perceptions of government through over time and a long-term process, as you say, of the government becoming more responsive, developing state capacities and changing its, uh, and, you know, acting, acting in ways to create a deterrent effect. Yeah, though I think it's a very interesting parallel. It's so interesting, you know, that's what I also mm. like with our Twitter exchange that we're coming from such different fields. Mm. And then you have very complementary sort of insights of parallels I would have never drawn. And what I think is um, common in what you just described in the text thing mm. is the information on its own doesn't act. Yes. It sits there mm -hmm. and it has a lot of power if it's combined with an agent who has power mm. to do something about mm. it. So in the tax authority, if the tax authority has effective auditing power and more information, mm -hmm. that auditing power will become more powerful. Yeah. But the information alone doesn't work. And in your example, if I understood correctly, mm -hmm. there's information out there, but if you have activists without power, then mm -hmm. the information doesn't help. But if you have somebody with power who can use the information, the power gets augmented by having better information. Yeah, absolutely. So there's another example from Indonesia where there were there was information about poor working conditions nationwide, but only where you have strong labor unions pushing and mobilizing and doing something about it do you see stronger enforcement. So it's not just a question of providing information, but also about strengthening state capacities and responsiveness. Mm -hmm. And that improves over time, just as mm -hmm. you were saying, it's a sort of iterative, positive feedback loop. And complements each other, power yeah. and information. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dina, honestly, Thank you you're so such much. a star. Thank you so much, Dina. I've learned a lot. I'm not just going to provide information, I'm going to shift perceptions about what the government will do. Thank you. Thank you very much.